We bow before you as the Lord of all. We come aware that uh, we oftentimes are not very good listeners, that we have our own way of listening to what we want to hear you say, instead of sometimes what is clearly being communicated to us through your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to have a humble heart, a willing heart, a submissive heart to you, and a heart that is prepared by your Holy Spirit to receive this word as we look into the, the wondrous gospel of peace this morning. We pray for your grace and your help during this time. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm trying to think what's a good way for us to summarize in a brief way the message of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, up to the first 10 chapters. How could we quickly do that? Well, let me give you a couple of sentences that hopefully can do that. We would start off by saying Jesus continues to work, even though he is now ascended to heaven, he continues to work through his apostles, and these apostles serve as his witnesses, both in Jerusalem and, remember, in Judea and Samaria. And we've seen the Lord bring about through those witnesses, amazing reconciliation between people who have been at odds against each other. We see that in the book of Acts, there's the reconciliation between sinners who are at enmity between them and a holy God. We see in the book of Acts that God has also brought people who at one time hated each other people who at one time were estranged from each other for generations, had nothing to do with each other, they are brought together and they are unified, not through any kind of political ideology, not through some sort of economic policies, uh, not through some sort of philosophical musings, but the reconciliation of large groups of people who at one time despised each other was accomplished through a remarkable peacemaker. A unique mediator whose love, whose selfless sacrifice breaks down walls of resentment, breaks down the prejudice, breaks down uh, all forms of, of uh, animosity against each other and creates bonds of love, bonds of unity together in harmony. The only person who can transform the hearts of foes into hearts of forgivers, the only person who could transform hearts of combatants into committed family members who truly love each other and care for each other is none other than Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Acts is showing us so far in the first 10 chapters. Now, clearly, we know that this is what our world needs. Our world is in desperate need of reconciling peace. A peace that brings people together who are at odds against each other, whether it's in marriages, whether it's between children and their parents, whether it's between other family members who are at odds against each other, whether it's against the races that are pitted against each other, whether it's against all sorts of class and envy and all the kinds of divisions that we have in our world today. Our world desperately needs this kind of peace. But there will be no peace until the people of this world are first reconciled to God through the gospel of peace. And so we're going to look at this text of Scripture. I hope you have your Bible open. We're looking at Acts chapter 10, verse 36. 
We had looked last week at the beginning part of Peter's message that he brought to this fellow named Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, a man who was in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers under his leadership. And it is Peter who has now entered into his home. He has gone into a place he normally would never have anything to do. He did it because the gospel of peace is motivating him to bring this good news to Cornelius and because God has made it very clear through the Holy Spirit that he wants these two men together. We're going to come to this portion of Scripture where Paul Peter then begins to explain in a succinct way this life-transforming gospel of peace. And we're going to notice three things. What are the three basic elements of the gospel of reconciliation? Well, if you look at verse 36 and following, through 39a, if you will, we come to the question that we're going to answer first of all is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Peter said, The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting in Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Who is Jesus? How one answers that question is critical. Now let me remind you that in reading this message of Peter, that Peter is speaking now, bringing this news to Cornelius, a Roman soldier, and he is explaining who Jesus is, because Peter has just spent three years with him, night and day. Peter knows him well. And Luke, who wrote this account of Peter's sermon, Luke also carefully investigated the beginnings of Jesus. He looked and interviewed a number of people and looked into the details of Jesus' unique conception and his birth that took place. It is Jesus who was born into a poor family. It's Jesus who was, grew up in a very unsophisticated part of that area at the time. It's in Nazareth. It's out in the country. He's, he's, he's in an area that no one would ever think that someone of that significance or importance would be born and grow up in that part of the world. But in what he's saying here is that Peter's emphasizing Jesus is human. He's right there from Nazareth. We know where he lived. But he didn't dwell on that very long because it becomes very clear the more you consider the life of Jesus Christ, he's more than merely a man. He did things that set him apart from all other people. Peter mentions, first of all, that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit with power. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of me? Power to do what? Power to work in his public ministry to evidence the fact that God is with him in a unique and powerful way. He lived in communion with God. He served God. He did what only God could do. Look at verse 38. He healed those oppressed by the devil. Clearly, that is a spiritual power that's greater than the devil. And Jesus had authority over Satan and the powers of darkness that was evidenced numerous times 
as Peter witnessed those kinds of uh, actions of Jesus uh, delivering people from demonic control. And so Peter moves to the second point. He's not only Jesus is human, but he's also divine. Jesus is God. Now, there have been many people in this world, and I've known many people throughout my lifetime, who I would say, oh, they're good folk. They do many good things. And that's true. But Jesus did nothing but good things. That's what sets him apart. Jesus never sinned. And that's why Peter makes this bold, dogmatic statement. If you'll notice it there, verse 36. If you, if you underline in your Bible or if you highlight on your tablet, you should definitely highlight this phrase. Verse 36, he talks about the preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Princess, he is Lord of all. What a powerful, succinct, pithy statement that's packed, so much is packed into that one little verse, that one little phrase. Let me just suggest to you a couple of things that I think Peter is noting here. First of all, he's saying that Jesus is God in human flesh. The reason I'm saying that is because the title Lord, used here in this verse, Jesus is Lord of all, would have been the same Greek word that was used to translate the title for God in the Hebrew Old Testament. When they translated the Hebrew Old Testament, there was a name for God, Yahweh. Well, the translators, using the Greek language, which is called the Septuagint, when they came to this name for God, they used the name Kyrios, which is the word here, Lord. He's calling him, basically, essentially, he's calling him the God of the Old Testament is the same one we're referring to as Jesus. He is God. What's amazing about that, when you think about it, is that Jesus, therefore, because he not only claimed to be God, but now he's also being called God by others, C.S. Lewis reminds us in his helpful book, Mere Christianity, which was based on a bunch of radio broadcasts that he um, put together bit by bit in the late 1940s. He's reminding people that Jesus, when you look at him, you cannot look at him and be indifferent toward him. Because Jesus is either a liar a lunatic, or he is Lord. He either is a person who knew for sure that he was not God, but yet he claimed to be God and he's pulling off a major fraud. Or he was mentally unbalanced. He really did think he was God and he was really a person who didn't have all of his paddles in the water. Or he truly was who he claimed to be. Those are the three options. You can't have any other way. And in writing the second letter that Peter wrote near the latter part of his life, now we're going fast forward here and think about Peter toward the end of his life. He's writing his second epistle. And he thinks back to the fact that some people are alleging that Jesus and some of the things that he actually pulled off, ah, they're just merely stories, they're myths, they're just things that people make up. And Peter says, no, no, no. He says, I was there as an eyewitness. With my own eyes, I saw the majesty of Jesus Christ revealed on that Mount of Transfiguration. He says, I heard the thunderous voice of approval from heaven. These are not things I'm making up. There were many people who were there on that occasion. Multiple people, I should say. 
And so as he mentions that Jesus is Lord of all, he's not only God, but he's also claiming that Jesus' reign is not limited just to Jews only. And that's why this is so significant now. Peter is speaking now to an audience who is clearly uh, has very little in common with him. Here's a man who was raised in the Roman Empire, who was involved at one time probably in his life with emperor worship and all those kind of things, and who believes in polytheism. Here is Peter reminding him that Jesus is Lord and master over everyone. That's including the Jews, that includes those who are pagans and Gentiles. And he's Lord of the, those who are well-to-do. He's Lord over those who are, should we say, the poor, those who don't have as many resources in the world. He's Lord over the educated and the highly intelligent and those who are not so well-educated, who are not so intelligent. He is Lord of the God-fearers. He is Lord of the atheists. And the scriptures say that every knee will bow before him one day. And because Jesus is God, he is uniquely qualified to act on our behalf to make peace with God. He is the only one who is able to offer to God a remedy that's adequate to resolve this enmity that exists between us and a holy God. And I don't have time to take this and unpack this, but believe me, if you take time to look at uh, Romans chapter 5, for example, verse 10, you'll come across a verse that says, While you were enemies... You were reconciled to God through the death of his son. He also goes on to say in Romans chapter 8 that those who have their minds set on the flesh are hostile toward God. What's he saying there? It means that we are a people who are not on good standing with God. We are those who are opposed to him. And that's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus is our only hope of finding peace with God. Now, what did Jesus do to provide that peace with God? That brings us to our second point. First of all, who is Jesus? Second point, what did Jesus accomplish on behalf of alienated sinners? This begins now in verse 39, the latter part of the verse. We read, and they also put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree, literally, or a cross. And God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not only, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly to testify that he is the one who has been appointed as God by God as judge of the living and the dead. What did Jesus accomplish? Well, first of all, he lived a sinless life. That's what Peter wrote in chapter 2 of his first letter. He said that Jesus committed no sin. And so instead of meeting out justice to all of his enemies when Jesus came to this world, it's interesting that he acted in patient love. He took upon himself the consequences of our rebellion, of our disgrace. And Jesus died there on a cross. Now, I know that's a familiar truth among many of you here, and I'm sure it's a familiar statement 
for Cornelius to know that people die by way of crucifixion. I'm sure that Cornelius was probably part of a team that had something to do with making sure that certain criminals were put to death by way of crucifixion. He knows the brutality of it. He knows the way in which a person is actually disgraced in the worst possible way, extracting the worst possible suffering from that person as long as they possibly can drag it out. It's a horrendous way to put someone to death. And Cornelius knows that. But what's different about Jesus and his execution committed by or taken, um, conducted by the Roman, Roman soldiers there, what's radically different was that Jesus was no criminal. He did not deserve to receive such treatment by Roman soldiers. He lived a life of conformity to the will of God. But Jesus died alongside criminals. He died among lawbreakers. And during his crucifixion, Jesus was suffering in a way that was different from those who suffered beside him. Rather than crying out during the time in which he hung there on the cross, my hands, my hands, my head, my head with the crown of thorns, my feet, my feet, what did Jesus cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While Jesus is nailed to that cross, what was happening during those moments was that he was bearing the wrath of God that was being poured out upon him as our substitute, as a substitute for sinners. And Jesus at that time was cut off from his Father. And unbelievably, when you think about it, Jesus was treated like an enemy before God. And Peter explained that Jesus' crucifixion, in his first epistle, he said it this way, 1 Peter 2, 24, Jesus himself bore or carried our sins in his body on the wood. That's literally what he wrote, on the tree. I find it fascinating that the same word here in Acts chapter 10, talking about Jesus' death, he talks about him, verse 39, hanging him on a literally tree. Same thing he used, the same word there in 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus is on a tree. He's talking about the fact that Jesus is cursed. He's clearly not someone who's enjoying the favor of God at that moment. And this was a description of how Jesus made peace with God on behalf of those of us who are God's enemies. He made peace by nailing to that cross, as it were, that long record of debt that you and I owe to God for all of the violations of his law that we've committed. Instead of us being punished for that long list, here's Jesus, the innocent one, dying in the place of guilty ones like you and me. And Jesus satisfied those demands of God's justice. He did so in keeping with God's mercy and love. And I wish we could now just sort of spend our next few moments a long time unpacking the wealth of joy, joyous truth there in Romans chapter 5. But I just want to remind you what Paul, in, his, in the logic of the gospel, as he thinks through the implications of what it means to be saved by faith, he talks about the fact that, therefore, we have, Romans 5.1, peace with God. How are we going to have peace with God? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is through Christ that we have obtained our access, our introduction into the grace in which we stand. It is through Jesus that we now have peace with God. Peter not only proclaims that Christ was crucified, but notice what else he mentions there in verses 40 and 41. He doesn't just stop with a person who died in a very noble and selfless way, but he goes on to say that God raised Jesus up on the third day and granted that he should become visible to eyewitnesses chosen beforehand by God. Who does that include? That includes the apostles of whom Peter is the representative on this occasion. And so Jesus is raised up on the third day. Now imagine if Jesus had remained in his grave, he would have been no different than any other religious leader that's ever lived. But since he was raised from the dead, and since he is alive, and since he is victorious over death, Jesus, therefore, is indeed, as he said in verse 36, he is Lord of all, just like we sang earlier. And Peter goes on now to make it very clear he's not talking about some kind of mystical spirit of resurrection, as if we can just suppose that now there's this spirit of, of resurrection truth that makes us all feel good and we want to act good and we want to do things. No, he's talking about a bodily resurrection. Look at verses 40 and 41. Peter is strongly emphasizing the fact that this Jesus's body was raised from the dead, not just a, a ghost-like figure there, some kind of spirit being moving around, but he mentions that the fact that we watched him eat, we watched him drink and consume liquids. We also know that we spent time with him in his resurrection body. He moves about from place to place. Maybe Peter's rethinking the memory of of running with John to the tomb on that first day of the week when they're hearing some message about the fact that no longer is his body there. He runs in there, they look inside, what'd they see? They found no dead body, they found merely grave clothes lying there. And then over a period of 40 days, Jesus presented himself alive to over 500 eyewitnesses. And Acts chapter 1, Luke having listened to all the people recount their eyewitness accounts of seeing Jesus alive, he says there are many convincing proofs that Jesus indeed was raised from the dead. This is not a made-up story. This is not some sort of imaginary uh, agreement among a bunch of people who want to think he's alive. This is historically that which they verify to be true. And this is crucial because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, his disciples never would have done what they're doing here on this occasion. They would never have had a change of heart. They would never have wanted to go to their enemies. They would never have wanted to take and follow his commands and his mandates. They would have said, well, it was good while it lasted, but I'm moving on. But because he's the risen Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ made it very clear to his apostles that they were to testify to everyone that they ran into from here on out. Look at verse 42. That Jesus Christ, because he was raised from the dead, has now been appointed the judge of the living and the dead. 
In other words, Jesus is not some irrelevant religious leader whose teaching you can easily just ignore and just say, eh, he's, he's a, from a bygone era, era. He's no longer relevant. He doesn't have anything to do with my life today. No, Jesus Christ stands apart from all others. No matter what your race, no matter what your class in life, no matter what your ethnicity is, you will give an account of your life to Jesus Christ one day. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. He knew everything about Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And the Bible speaks of Jesus one day, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. One day, Jesus is going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Someday we will face either justice meted out by Jesus for all the times of rebellion, for all those times in which we defied him and his rule and reign when we wanted to be our own king, our own masters, or we will enjoy his grace, his mercy, and his love. But what Peter is reminding Cornelius on this occasion is, listen to this, you cannot you dare not ignore Jesus Christ because everything that Jesus claimed, all the claims that he made about himself, they are vindicated. He cannot be avoided or ignored. Everyone will stand before him as judge, giving the strong implication of, are you ready for that day? There was a time in my life when I was not ready for that day and I was a fearful person. I was an anxious person. I was a person who did not have peace in my heart and life. Because there's a day of accountability that we all must face, whether you're alive when he comes or whether you've already died and then he comes. We still are going to have to face the day of accountability. And so that brings us to the third point, and Peter moves quickly into this. And I'm sure this is a condensed version of what he said on that occasion. But notice what he says here as we read um, in verse 43. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him has received forgiveness of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to his message. He moves now to the response portion of the gospel of peace. What is our response to Jesus? And Peter reminds him and urges him, of course, is to believe, to trust in Jesus Christ. He concludes this gospel presentation, noting that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, all the significance of all those things. And he says, listen, in light of all those things, no one is automatically reconciled to God just because Jesus lived a certain way, just because he died a certain way, and just because he's now alive again. Peter makes this important point. Only those who believe in him receive forgiveness of sins. The only way we benefit from Jesus' reconciling work is to fully rely on Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection as the remedy for our own sinful record before a holy God. Instead of trusting in our own 
efforts, our own good works, our own family life, our own generous donations to charity, to somehow make us right with God, to be on good standing with God, we need to put the full weight of our trust on Jesus Christ on His righteousness, the things that He did in obedience to the law. As one writer put it, Greg Gilbert, he says this, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve. Therefore, we must renounce all other trusts, and our plea is to be Christ alone. So believe. Trust in Christ. But there's also another side of that coin, as it were. There's two sides to the idea of there's believing in Christ, two sides of responding to the gospel. And then there's another side. It's called repentance. Always linked together with true faith. Because Jesus started off in his own public ministry. We read in Mark chapter 1, Jesus declared, repent and believe the gospel. It is Peter who also then understood that to be so critical when he said in chapter 2 of Acts, he says, repent then, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. So here he is on this occasion with Cornelius in his Cornelius' house. And for some reason, which again God was working on that occasion according to his own sovereign plans, Peter didn't have a chance to get to this point. <laughs> I don't think he ran out of time. Because if you look at verse 44, it says, while Peter was speaking. He was getting to the point of saying, you must, you must turn away from sin. Turn your back on sin. But God moved so dramatically and, and um, obviously in the heart of Cornelius that Peter no longer had a chance to finish what he was going to say. He was more than ready to turn from his sin, Cornelius was. He was more than ready to turn to Christ. Repentance, obviously, is the response of yielding to Jesus as king. It involves renouncing all loyalty to any of Jesus' enemies. Indeed, when you think about it, Cornelius, a devout person we read about in the early parts of chapter 10, he was a person who was feared God, he he gave alms to people. He was giving money to the poor. He was a person who prayed a lot. Even a person like that has to what? Respond in faith in Christ. They have to repent of their sins. And so even here is Cornelius, encouraged because of the gospel of what Jesus did. He says, now if you come to faith in faith, believing in Christ, returning from your sin, no longer are you needed to be afraid of God. No longer are you at enmity against God where you have to hide from Him and avoid Him and, and try your best to somehow pacify Him. Now you can come to God and Jesus extends His arms wide open to you, welcoming you, receiving you, enjoying you, embracing you because of Christ. It is Jesus who now is not turning away from you. He is not threatening you as if He's going to strike you somehow with his anger. No longer do you need to face those things. The cross has brought about a difference in the way we relate to Christ. It is indeed the gospel of peace. There's only one way, my friends, and that is what Peter proclaimed to him. It is Christ, him crucified, buried, and risen. 
Now that brings us to what we are going to do about that ourselves, my friends. And that wonder, I wonder if, if you're someone who's here today who says, well, I'm a pretty good person, just like Cornelius. The gospel still applies to you. You must transfer your trust from yourself to Christ and Him alone. You must turn from your sin and turn to Christ alone. And in so doing, my friends, you will enjoy the wondrous thought of being reconciled to God by faith and being reconciled to others who are similarly saved by grace. And that's where I want us to read from a quote from the Gospel Primer, a very worthwhile book. I encourage you to obtain a copy of that someday, The Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. He says this, The gospel is not just a message of reconciliation with God. It's in your notes, in your outline. It, is also, it also heralds the reconciliation of all believers to one another in Christ. Through the death of Christ, God has brought peace where there was once hostility, and he has broken down the racial, economic, and social barriers that once divided us outside of Christ. And by fixing our minds on the gospel, we are reminded of the love that God has shown to us. My friend, that's what it seems to me we have to stay at the cross long enough. We have to think about the gospel of reconciliation long enough till we become so amazed and profoundly overwhelmed by the love that God has for us. The love that Christ demonstrated to us. And therefore the gospel at that moment gives to me wherewithal to give forgiving grace to those who have wronged me or wronged you. It reminds me daily of the forgiving grace that God is showing me. Doing good and showing love to those who have wronged me is always the opposite of what my sinful flesh wants me to do. Nevertheless, when I remind myself of my sins against God and of His forgiving and generous grace toward me, I give the gospel an opportunity to reshape my perspective and to put me in a frame of mind wherein I actually desire to give this same grace to those who who have wronged me. That is the gospel of peace, working in our hearts and then working outward into our lives. Is that obvious in your life? Are you at odds against your spouse? Are you at odds against one of your kids or are you a kid at odds against one of your parents or both of your parents? Are you at odds against other people, other Christians, other people that have sinned against you and you've never really begun to act out the gospel of peace toward them? The gospel is powerful, my friends. Powerful on that day when the Holy Spirit applied it into the life of Cornelius. It's powerful in another person's life that I've been reading about this week. A person who stood right here years ago, in the last, I would say, probably maybe 20-some years ago, uh, 15 years ago. His name is Caesar Molabazzi. Anybody ever heard of him? Several of you know who I'm talking about. Caesar Molabazzi came here one time to speak. He is a South African, a black man who was born under the horrendous laws of apartheid. He grew up in a family in which they were they lost their family property. They were forced to move. They were given nothing but a tent to live in for three months. 
with all of their worldly goods thrown into this tent. And they said, okay, you got three months, then we're going to take this tent and give it to somebody else. And you have to just make do. Go find your own place to live. That's how the government treated these people. They changed the educational laws so that it was very, very difficult to get a decent education because they were just happened to be black. As a person growing up with all these injustices of apartheid every day, this institutionalized discrimination. He talked about one time he went to the bank and all he wanted to do was get change. And in the bank, there is one line for the black Africans, South Africans. There are four tellers dealing with people who are the white customers, and there's nobody in those lines. There are 25 people waiting in line for the one teller dealing with the black customers. And you dare not move to go to the other teller, even though they have nothing to do and they're waiting around. And he talks about how that just became the normal pattern. Over and over and over, you're, you're being told you're a second-class citizen. You're a person who is treated worse than if you were not even a person. He was already hating white people as a teenager, but it got much worse when he is riding his bicycle one day. As he goes down the road, the man behind him is a white man driving the car. He's trying to pass now Caesar Molobazzi on this bicycle, and as he's seeking to do so, he realizes that he doesn't have enough time to get ahead of him uh, on the bicycle because there's another car now coming in the other lane. And what does this man do? He looks to the right, he sees Caesar there bicycling, and he chooses to just say, he turns the wheel of the car, he knocks Caesar off of that bike, his body slams down onto the pavement, and he just keeps right on going. Left him for dead. Caesar had all sorts of internal injuries, all sorts of broken bones. As a result of such, he eventually had gangrene in his leg and eventually had his leg amputated. Here he is as now a man who is dealing with this handicap, physical handicap. As a black man in South Africa, he is full of rage. He is so angry, all he can think about, with all this resentment boiling over in his heart, he and his brother are strategizing how they're going to burn down the house of that white man who hit him with that car. And one of the reasons he is so angry is because the police report, when his father went to inquire what happened with this police report, he said, well, we've already gotten a statement from your son, and your son uh, admitted that he was drunk. He was never interviewed by the police. A year later, they kept waiting for the police to do something about this incident, and they went there and they came back, and his father was told and it, the truth from the police, and as he finally heard the word from the police uh, report, Caesar was kept outside for a while. His father came out somber, not saying anything. He began to cry as they're walking home, still silence. And finally he said, son, what they said to us was, he said, you should be glad that your, your son is still alive. They used a term to describe his son as if it was a term that's commonly used for an animal. He basically inferred in his own way as a white South African, stop making so much concerns about this person that's like an animal. All you want is money out of the situation. Needless to say, Caesar was a, just an angry, angry man. With all those thoughts of revenge and hatred, what's going to break 
that kind of pattern in his life? What's going to keep him from becoming a person who acts out in acts of violence and himself get killed? It's a long story. I can't condense it all here. I mean, I have to condense it because I can't tell it all. He began to hear words about Jesus Christ taught in their school at an opening assembly several times in his high school years. That began to intrigue him. He was invited to go to one of the retreats, and on that retreat, he kept hearing about Jesus. He kept thinking, I'm such a skeptic, I don't believe any of this stuff. But the more he heard about how Jesus dealt with those who hated him, the more he heard about the forgiveness of Jesus against those who had despised him and treated him so unfairly, the more he began to say, that is an amazing kind of love. And this is what he wrote about his own conversion. Let me just read. This is, by the way, the book I checked out from the church library called A Flame for Justice by Cesar Molibazzi. He says, Quietly, almost as an act of desperation, I surrendered my life to God. I knew that Jesus Christ was the only way to have a relationship with God, and I also knew that he would either be Lord of all or he would not be Lord at all. I had made a decision for life. And from now on, I would take the Bible seriously as it applied to every area of my life, whatever the cost. In that decisive moment, I knew my life would never be the same again. It would no longer be controlled. Sorry, it would no longer be led by the uncontrolled passions of bitterness, rage, and hatred, but by the ceaseless striving to love those that I hated. Jesus Christ changed his life, and he became a person who, through the ministry of Youth Alive, changed so many other young African, black, uh, young South African men and women, and they became a massive force for change, bringing about justice, bringing about the change of the gospel to change people's lives, and to give them hope and reconciling them to people who had treated them so horrendously for so long. There's only one person who can do that, my friend, Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives us a gospel of peace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this amazing news that was announced by Peter to Cornelius, a man whose heart you had been preparing, a man who clearly was longing to hear what you had to say to him through Peter. He was a man who had been humbled, a man who was willing to realize that he needed to heed whatever the Scripture said to him. We thank you, Lord, for the amazing work of your Spirit in Cornelius's life and heart. Thank you that you also worked an amazing work of grace in Peter's heart to bring him that good news, to give him a heart that longed to love people who at one time he hated. Lord, I pray that your gospel of peace will have its mighty influence in our own hearts and that we might be used by you, Lord, to be those who carry the gospel to those who need to be told that there is one who has died for them and who now lives for them and who is going to someday be their judge. We thank you that there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. There is reconciliation through the one who died for us. Help us, Lord, to lay down our own lives. Help us to lay down our, our, um, our grievances, our offenses, our, um, 
our attitude of resentment and revenge. Help us, Lord, to be a people who will forgive and to have hearts of compassion for those who are so unlike us, but who also need to know you. We pray these things through Christ our Lord, our wonderful and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now we're going to uh, celebrate...